Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please practice excellent self and community care while listening. We're surrounded by trite cliches about following our hearts. And spaces where people allege to be into emotional intelligence that are then utterly intolerant when oppressed peoples express our feelings. Feelings, by the way, that Eurocentrism judges as allegedly negative in this fake binary that a lot of our loved ones still adhere to, unfortunately. Or the same wannabe influencers who speak softly about the wisdom of our feelings, then turn around and treat ethical indignation as a state to, quote, process, end quote, and, quote, move past, end quote, as quickly as possible, while unironically privileging a performance of social media-ready happiness as a superior emotional state. Contradictions much? What anti-intellectualism? So here's what's up. Feelings emerge from our lived experiences. More specifically, what gets colloquially called feelings are physiological sensations that we then interpret through the language of emotions, that language being epically cultural and contextual, to be sure. Now, respecting physiological cues can be literally life-saving at times, yet feelings can also be Islamophobic and classist and transphobic and otherwise oppressive. You see, our interpretations of our feelings are mediated by our minds, by our upbringings, by our enculturation, by our socialization. Here's one example of this that you may be familiar with. Have you noticed that cops in the settler colonial US 
who murder people have said that they were afraid as a justification for these extrajudicial killings literally thousands of times? How do we make sense of that? I'm afraid it's not as simple as sloppily calling upon a meme or a tweet about so-called emotional intelligence. So when are our feelings trustworthy? When aren't they trustworthy? How can we relate to our feelings in a way that doesn't just smuggle our uninterrogated biases into some mystified realm that's allegedly beyond reproach? Let's talk about it. So physiological sensations can be fleeting or ephemeral, but where their serious valence is in our meaning making about them. So let's see what Professor Alison Jagger has to say in her legendary 1989 article titled Love and Knowledge, Emotion and Feminist Epistemology. She writes that, quote, by constructing emotion, as epistemologically subversive, the Western tradition has tended to obscure the vital role of emotion in the construction of knowledge. Oh, epistemological subversion. So we had to read this legendary essay in my intro to philosophy class back in undergrad. And I bring it up for folks that might not be familiar with her intervention, right? She does a whole lot more work around this amidst a whole lot of scholars that do work in this realm related to the role of emotion in epistemology. So just wanting to gesture to this entire field. If you haven't gotten the chance to learn from it, it definitely merits getting into if you ask me. And Dr. Jagger and I had the pleasure of connecting in 2009 at the 25th anniversary conference of the founding of Hypatia, which is the largest feminist philosophy scholarly journal on Turtle Island at the University of Washington, where we were both presenting our research. And it's horrifying for me to see in 2020, the vast majority of folks in the settler colonial US still being ignorant about her contributions. So again, at the most basic level, to answer your question in Balleran, breaking that down, what she is speaking to is the reality that, so in the Western canon of philosophy, when it comes to different theories of knowing, right, or different forms of epistemology, typically there's this split, not always, there are a lot of exceptions to it, but generally there's this binary between reason and emotion Emotion, right, where reason or being logical is presumed to be the way that we're capable of knowing, and that's contrasted with the realm of emotion, right? So historically, if we take it back to ancient Greek philosophy, there's this entire language related to the so-called passions, right? Which was this kind of ancient Greek philosophical way of talking about emotions and feelings. And the storyline was then principally that if you got taken over by passions, right? Which you can see even in terms of the languaging <laughs> really merits noticing. It's not seen as something that's voluntary. It's almost seen as something that, yeah, absolutely another binary that obscures our capacity to know with more truth value, right? This is part of why within that whole 
Eurocentric paradigm, this cis-heteropatriarchal paradigm, this classist paradigm, right? People presume that if you have any feelings, that makes you less capable of knowing, right? If you're experiencing an emotional state, that means that you're actually less valid as a knower. But the thing is, people have been challenging this binary since folks have been advocating it. And so that's part of why I'm wanting to bring in, taking it back to the 80s and earlier, some of this kind of literature, right, in scholarly journals that demonstrates that's actually ridiculous. So hence, again, you can see her here saying, oh, no, actually, emotion is vital when it comes to how we construct knowledge. It's not an impediment to knowing. It doesn't get in the way of knowing necessarily. So then we've got to parse out what do we do with it, right? There's a lot of complexity to get into, but at minimum at the outset to acknowledge that emotions and feelings don't intrinsically impede our capacity to know, right? So that's a little bit of, right, one of the core presuppositions that's necessary for us so that we're not just consistently caught in this trap of invalidating emotions and then based on that faulty premise, trying to know in ways that actually aren't even realistic, right? You're welcome. Uh, so because so many of our loved ones get manipulated through our feelings, it's really important for us to delve into this more carefully. And also because we're at so many cultural impasses around the relevance of feelings to be able to know and to understand ourselves, the world, our role in the world, right, more fully, right, that it's really helpful to be conversant with or familiar with some of this literature, right, so then we can meaningfully move forward through some of those frustrating impasses that we're still waiting in culturally. So for example, y'all can let me know, have you ever had an experience where someone was being oppressive, and so you responded in part by getting visibly upset. And then all of a sudden, you're getting gaslit, like you're gonna have to calm down as if we need some flat affect to be acceptable. What is that ridiculous assertion? Do you notice how prescriptive it is? Prescriptive like a prescription, like normative, like telling us the right way to feel, which is oftentimes through a performance of non-feeling that gets put on a pedestal in some of these kinds of ways. Let's break that down, especially if any of y'all have had that kind of experience. So in this example, being oppressive is allegedly fronting as neutral or value-free. And then you potentially say having the heart, so to speak, or a spine or a conscience or the awareness to perceive oppression, and then some bodily register that's responding accordingly, that gets framed as less than? And someone who's exhibiting what could be framed as some kind of emotional, right, incompetence or illiteracy or lack of awareness there, and or a lack of ethics, frankly, in front of you, let alone pressuring you to not have, whether it's a conscience or awareness that you have, they're supposedly neutral? 
What gaslighting? So here's where feminist epistemology comes in. It teaches us how sneaky those moves are and how to understand what's going on in those kinds of interactions with more explanatory power than would be available to us otherwise. So Malcolm X famously addresses this in his 1962 speech called Who Taught You to Hate Yourself that he delivered in Los Angeles. Let's listen to a couple of brief excerpts from this speech on so-called emotionality. So here's the first one for us to have a listen to. Let's see here. Let me just cue this and hopefully y'all can hear it okay. If not, please do let me know. When black people who are being oppressed become impatient, they say that's emotional. Please. When black people who are being deprived of their citizenship, not only of their civil rights, but their human rights, become impatient, become fed up, don't want to wait any longer, then they say that's emotional. Did y'all hear that? Isn't that so interesting, right? And how about we listen to just one more excerpt from this legendary speech? And if y'all haven't been able to listen to it in full, it really merits listening to at your earliest convenience. Um, so how about we just listen to one more short excerpt real quick? 20 million black people don't even know their own language. Why? Because he took it away from them. 20 million black people who don't even know the history of their ancestors. Why? Because he took it away from them. And if you try and tell them how thoroughly and completely they've been robbed, he says you're teaching hate. So also bringing in the language of hate here, right? How the language of hate gets manipulated and weaponized in the service of perpetuating the status quo in a settler colony like the U.S. What all did y'all notice there from those couple of excerpts? So do you see how the language of, quote, being emotional, end quote, is coded as negative? And also, do you see how it serves to invalidate whomever is being labeled emotional? Now, this isn't in a more innocuous context, like someone tearing up while witnessing a gorgeous sunset, then being judged as in their feelings. So let's explicitly bring in the political dimension of his insight. He was specifically talking about the language of emotionality getting weaponized and weaponized to delegitimate who and what. Who? Black folks in the settler colonial U.S. And doing what? Naming anti-black racism. So when we spell out that subtext, do you see how there's absolutely nothing objective or neutral about that weaponization of the language of emotionality? Unfortunately, this is still the norm in the settler colonial U.S. over 50 years after Malcolm X delivered that address. 
where BIPOC and other oppressed folks are expected to swallow our feelings in the face of daily disrespect, violence, and oppression. In that way, disgusting indignities actually continue to get further normalized. Thus, I argue that we actually desperately need massive systemic recalibrations of our affective baselines. So people in the settler colonial US speaking English, certainly in my lifetime, so often generalize about feelings in a way that's not even trying to be rigorous. And then their sound bites fly at the expense of actual understanding in a way that's devoid of any of the kind of nuanced understanding of power dynamics that Malcolm X was just laying out for us. So much impacts our experience of our feelings. This includes peer pressure, the false binary between so-called positive feelings and so-called negative feelings, shunning feelings that are considered unpopular within the mainstream, projections, expectations to make other people feel certain things, like making someone happy or proud, for example, whether it's perhaps parents, a partner, a boss, customers, neighbors, etc., just to name a few examples to get us going. Hope, anger, guilt, frustration, happiness. Emotions are incredibly political. So let's do a little more historicizing so that we don't get stuck in those anti-intellectual cliches about feelings that are so incredibly popular within the mainstream culture. And so how about we actually have a look at a little bit of an excerpt from John Trudell's legendary 2001 talk, Mining of Human Spirit, to see some of what he has to say around the role of feelings in perpetuating colonialism, and also, right, spoiler alert, a little bit about how the Spanish Inquisition really harmed folks that are racialized as white today in terms of their affective landscape that for millions of folks has still yet to be healed. Let's have a listen. And the being part of human is being mined through the logic of the human, right? And, and uh, the emotions of the human. The being part of human is being mined in part through our emotions. So many of y'all know that have come through for Liberation Spring classes, we look at this mining of human spirit, address of John Trudell's in multiple classes, mining of emotions as being key to the colonizing process, and then taking it back even further historically. What else does he have to say here? Let's have another listen to a very brief excerpt. So the descendants of the tribes of Europe, in the end, had to love what they feared, which was there to possess them. See, and I think it messed up love in a lot of ways, you know, that they haven't unsorted yet. <laughs> no offense, but... <laughs> 
the descendants of the tribes of Europe had to love what they feared that was there to possess them. So I know that for some of y'all who have done deep dives into, right, whiteness, right, taking it back prior to the settler colonial U.S. to some of what was going on, right, on the European continent, especially during and after the Spanish Inquisition, that in particular might not be news to you. How profound is that, though, if we take it back, right, and we consider, right, for how many of us, so here he's talking about folks of European descent, especially, right, that endured the Spanish Inquisition, right, and more broadly, we could talk about, right, as capitalism spread from the English countryside out to Ireland to so many other parts of Europe and then the so-called Global South and the so-called New World, Right, that that colonizing process did what emotionally, right? If folks were gonna survive physically, right, they were forced to love what they feared that was there to possess them. Right, for folks that have that as a part of the memory that is still in their bodies, how does that impact, right, our emotional landscape, our feeling states today where that has yet to be healed? So that intimate, horrific distortion is one of the foundations of the emotional landscape since the Spanish Inquisition in Europe. And then colonizers arriving on Turtle Island brought that affective baseline with them. Tribes who were being violated, getting forced into loving the peoples who were trying to genocide them out of existence, to steal their spiritual traditions, to take away their worldviews, their customs, their cultures, their land bases. So individualistic psychology has a phrase called the Stockholm Syndrome that's used in personal contexts to talk about that terrifying phenomenon where somebody can develop feelings for their kidnapper. And people are often shocked and disgusted to learn about the Stockholm Syndrome. But the Stockholm Syndrome isn't even a drop in the bucket of how oppressed peoples are bullied, miseducated, peer pressured, disciplined, and quote, professionalized, end quote, into feeling states that ensure subservience. This context is utterly non-negotiable to contend with for anyone who wants to understand feelings under oppression. And so on that front, right, if we're going to attempt to understand, right, how feelings get manipulated in oppressive settings with the kind of rigor that Malcolm X was just inviting us into, with the kind of rigor that John Trudell was inviting us into, right, then first and foremost, it would be really helpful for us to pay attention to our feelings to begin with. So let's have a little look at what the legendary scholar Dr. Antonio Damasio shared in his book, The Feeling of What Happens, 
body and emotion in the making of consciousness. He says, quote, some readers may be puzzled by the distinction between, quote, feeling, end quote, and, quote, knowing that we have a feeling, end quote. Doesn't the state of feeling imply of necessity that the feeler organism is fully conscious of the emotion and feeling that are unfolding? I'm suggesting that it doesn't, that an organism may represent in neural and mental patterns the state that we conscious creatures call a feeling without ever knowing that the feeling is taking place. This separation is difficult to envision, not only because the traditional meanings of words block our view, but because we tend to be conscious of our feelings. I would contend with or contest that assertion, but that's what this guy says. <laughs> There's, however, no evidence that we're conscious of all our feelings and much to suggest that we're not. For example, we often realize quite suddenly in a given situation that we feel anxious or uncomfortable, pleased or relaxed. And it's apparent that the particular state of feeling we know then hasn't begun on the moment of knowing, but rather some time before. And so I bring this in because unfortunately, right, as I'm sure many of us know, right, it's quite common for people to be experiencing physiological sensations without actually consciously being aware of them. So if we're going to delve more fully into, say, what Dr. Allison Jagger was encouraging us to do to see where feelings and emotions can be beneficial in knowing, well, first and foremost, it would be really helpful to be paying attention to our feelings, right? Hence the importance of bringing this in, of acknowledging that for many of us, especially within this society, it actually takes a whole lot of intentionality to do that, especially because of, right, that common binary that we spoke to, this, right, classic, right, sort of Eurocentric, right, reason, emotion split that has a lot of people just wanting to deny their feelings in this quest for perceived legitimacy, right? And so around that, actually, it would be really beneficial for us to look to easily one of the most legendary and helpful thinkers in this realm. Her name is Dr. Sara Ahmed. I wonder if any of y'all are familiar with some of her work. So her 2006 book, Queer Phenomenology, is one of her more legendary texts, although there are a couple of others that I sincerely hope y'all can check out at some point. Um, so one being The Promise of Happiness, and another being the cultural politics of emotion. Why don't we actually listen to her talk a little about the mainstream duty to be happy. Inbal, you referenced this earlier, a duty to be happy. Isn't that an interesting framing? Um, and her infamous work on so-called feminist killjoys. So let's just have a listen real quick, right, to an excerpt of a few minutes of Dr. Ahmed talking about her research in the cultural politics of feelings 
happiness and especially happiness. Um, so especially if y'all are not familiar with her work, I invite you to write her name down so that hopefully you can scope out some of this. It really merits learning from. Here we go. Use of diversity in the way that evoke directly some of the second wave feminist critiques of how images of the happy housewife were being used to make things appear um, beautiful or, or venerable or desirable um, in a way that obscured the, the, the labor and the problem that has no name. Um, so that I wanted to write about that, the, the, the way in which happiness can be used to conceal um, all that doesn't meet its demand. And the other thing was seeing the film Bend It Like Beckham, which like, got me so cross because it was an interesting film and I really, really liked this film, but the happiness of that ending when all their pain and the pathos of past memories of racism experienced by the father of the Jess in the film is overcome by playing the game and by proximity to the white men in the ending. And it's just kind of like the use of happiness to imply that our task is just to get over racism, to put it behind you, to happiness as a kind of forward orientation that then very quickly becomes an injunction to put those memories of racism, of whatever forms of power stop you from doing or being as you wish to do or be, to put those things behind you. So the, the, the sense that happiness was doing something, um, that it was actually rendering those who were not happy responsible for their own misfortune, that it was obscuring ongoing relations of inequality and violence and injustice, and that it was narrowing our idea of what a life can be. All of that led me to happiness. But when I first began the research for the book, I think I was actually myself quite overwhelmed by how consistently feminists had involved, had been involved in direct critiques of that happiness injunction. So when I'm making a critique of the happiness duty, I'm not being original. Very rarely are we as feminists being original. I was drawing upon a much earlier established feminist critique, including something like um, Simone de Beauvoir's Second Sex, where she said it's always easy to describe as happy the situation in which one wishes to place others. Like, how perfectly wise is that? And so I was, I was actually, you know, part of a much longer genealogy of feminists who were quite clearly showing that happiness was being used to, to make a social norm, a social convention into a good thing, because that's how you can make something appear to be good, by making it appear to be the cause of, happy, of happiness. Because what was unquestionable throughout the very, very histories of philosophy, or, or Western philosophy on happiness, was the idea that happiness is what you want and happiness is a good thing. So it was very important to begin to think about that freedom to be happy is actually really about a, 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 not only an injunction, but a duty to be happy. And to, a duty to be happy is a duty to live your life in a way that would make others happy because if certain people come first, and that might mean parents, but it might also mean citizens or hosts, then their happiness comes first. So the happiness duty really means a duty to follow other people's goods. So doing the critique of happiness doesn't mean I'm not saying we should thus all be unhappy, as if that's some sort of duty. And killing joy isn't even about necessarily being unhappy. It is simply saying if happiness is found in those places and if pointing out unhappiness or power makes other people unhappy, then I'm willing to make other people unhappy. 
So I hope you all were able to hear that okay. Um, if not, again, Dr. Ahmed's work on, again, the happiness duty is really what's up. Um, and if you're not familiar actually with her website that is called Feminist Killjoy, it really merits having a look at. So I know that the antiquated language of being a killjoy can be evocative. Kill is a strong word. And I find the term really oppressive, actually, because it frames care about justice as centrally about killing the joy, end quote, of people who are being oppressive, which centers them and their feelings. And I wouldn't advocate that. Madeline sharing, this feels similar to modern day mindfulness and the use of compassion to silence the anger in response to police violence and racism. <laughs> Yogi Indrani sharing, yes, right, precisely. And so this is exactly part of why, right, I am doing a lot of name dropping right now because I want y'all to be familiar with so many of the epic revolutionaries and feminists that have come before us that have been naming exactly that kind of scam, right? So for example, when she brings in this language of, quote, happy housewives, end quote, right? I'm sure that y'all might be familiar with, right, lots of different cultural critiques of people acknowledging, whether it's a taking it back to the 50s or earlier, yeah, this pressure to put on a happy face in the context of oppression is ideological as fuck. It is not superficially on the face of it about us actually being happy, right? And something else there that it's super important for us to name is, right, when she's talking about this happiness imperative, we've got to ask, where's this even coming from? Because so often, right, you'll hear these, right, people in the first world or the so-called global north saying things like, everybody wants to be happy. And that kind of hubris is breathtaking, saying happiness is the greatest goal, right, or end for all people throughout all of time and space. Yet, that such wide-reaching arrogance shouldn't be surprising for students of imperialist epistemologies. These Eurocentric, cis-heteropatriarchal authority figures in the global north consistently pretend to speak for all of the world's billions of people in this kind of way, masquerading as objective the whole time, what could be less objective? This trash was Orwellian prior to Orwell, right? In Balsharian, I feel like, generally speaking, white people often have, quote, happiness, and quote, but not actual joy. And doesn't that really, Inbal, thank you for bringing in that reflection, right? Beg the question, what in the hell is happiness? Who gets to define that to begin with, right? Madeline Sharing, thank you, Anjali, for sourcing this life-giving work, of course. And the thing around it is, because in the absence of that, how many millions of our loved ones are literally getting scammed in real time by this kind of pop psychology, positive psychology, peer pressure to be happy amidst omnicide, right? While being completely, right, avoidant and ignorant to the reality that 
we could get free and then be happy if people want to have this happiness fetish, right? But for so many of us, whether it's the ethical indignation that we're facing, that is representative of, according to many of our worldviews and cosmologies, the best of us, the deepest knowing of us, of, right, what is problematic and unjust and brutal and unnecessary within our reality. So instead of just gaslighting that because some pop periodical told us to or some listicle on the internet told us to, we've got to be able to push back, right? And so, exactly, positive vibes only during an ongoing omnicide. Precisely, like if people have this fetish for positive vibes, we can get free and then if we want to have positive vibes. But in the absence of the getting free part, that's so often just this horrific, fake, right, and inauthentic masquerade. And so I do want to bring in one more, right, legendary piece around what we're speaking to, right? So Dr. Lauren Berlant is another, right, feminist scholar that does work related to emotions that I would really like for y'all to be conversant in if you're not familiar with her work already. So I'm pulling up an image of her legendary Duke University Press book from 2008 called The Female Complaint, The Unfinished Business of Sentimentality in American Culture. And I bring that up kind of like with the work, right, of Dr. Sara Ahmed on, right, complaint, actually, because here's one of the things that they both raise that's super important for us to take seriously, that so often, and I'm sure y'all already know this, right, complaints get judged as negative within the mainstream settler colonial culture, right? And so then quite often somebody that's sharing a speech act that gets labeled a complaint, then it's like we get labeled as negative according to this ridiculous binary. So as opposed to lots of other cultural interpretations, like, wow, thank you so much for caring that you noticed something that we could have a look at, right? Could be right received with gratitude, with grace, with respect, with acknowledgement. But so often, right, like both of their works on complaint acknowledge, right? Then so often what happens, right? The messenger gets attacked as a way of not looking at the message, right? So this is part of why, right, one of Dr. Ahmed's books that she's working on right now and that she's been doing work around for years, you can see some of her writing on this in her book um, or her website, Feminist Killjoys, is, right, when people, right, are bringing up grievances, say, in a workplace related to oppression or related to injustice, right, this language of complaint comes up quite often in a way that, if it's coded negative, actually discourages us affirmations from the geckos on my ceiling <laughs> that actually discourages us right from raising grievances that could support the world's becoming more just right for people who care about that right yeah it could be caring courageous benevolent but instead we're negative 
So again, the thing around that is how are we going to make any kind of good faith engagement with our feelings if we're not calling into question, like I mentioned earlier, all of this pressure culturally to not even feel certain things, right? Um, and so again, the thing is, one of the major takeaways that I hope you all get from this is, right, it's not like feelings are in some place that's beyond reproach, right, that is just totally on a pedestal, right, that isn't mediated, right? No, our feelings are absolutely mediated by our ideas. So one of the most frustrating things that I really want to invite y'all's attention to here that's a major way of not contending with all these dynamics I'm sharing um, has actually been named by the late Professor Robert Solomon, who's one of the most well-known, right, philosophers of emotion in the settler colonial U.S. So let's scope out a concern that he named in this Oxford University article that's called Emotions, Thoughts, and Feelings, Emotions as Engagements with the World. He warns us about, what do you see that I highlighted on this page? Neuro-reductionism. What do you think that might mean? Neuro-reductionism. I strongly encourage you to be on the lookout for this um, because here's where some people's fetish for objectivity cosplay gets smuggled into the realm of neurology, right? So what's any kind of reductionism, right? It's where people are being overly simplistic, right? And so if, say, reality is this kaleidoscope, so there's so many different facets that are contributing to a particular issue that's on the table for us to look at, reductionism would be like, oh, it's just all psychology. You just need to look at psychology, then you'll understand the whole picture, right? Or, for example, genetics, right? Like some of y'all have heard me talk about what I call genetic determinism, where people act like their genetics is fate or it's destiny, right? And you don't need to look at anything else. If you're looking at genetics, that's all you need to know, right? So here, right, what he's bringing in, right, as one of the preeminent scholars in the realm of the philosophy of emotion is, right, what he has noticed as neuro-reductionism when it comes to contemporary scholarship on emotion in the settler colonial U.S., and so again, what might that look like? That looks like, right, people disproportionately centering, right, neurology, neurobiology, brain science at the expense of every other variable at play in the realm of emotion. Uh, and I'm wondering if any of y'all have ever noticed that before. Have any of y'all? So again, if you're not familiar with this language of neuroreductionism in the realm of emotion, I really encourage you to be on the lookout for it. And, you know, it's also really important for me that we delve into, at least briefly, some of the other things that impact, right, our relationship with our feelings, how we understand our feelings. So our understanding of emotionality and of rationality has been distorted by social engineering. So especially by normalizing that fragmentation between emotions and reason that we were talking about earlier. So have you ever heard someone 
advocate keeping a talk or a decision logical or fact-based, perhaps by saying, let's not make an emotional decision. What do you think that means? Rachel sharing, yes, totally grounding into the objective science of neuroscience as if it trumps all, precisely, hence that, right, objectivity cosplay that I alluded to earlier, right? So the thing is, their body is a part of their decision-making process, whether they acknowledge it or not. And if we're not hip to this phenomenon already, some people think they're being sneaky by saying things like, I'm just fact-based, I'm just pro-science, I'm just data-driven. And they literally think that that makes them sound objective and more legit than other folks. Say then, right, folks that are in good faith acknowledging our skin in the game, right? Our subjectivity, our positionality, which actually allows us to get closer to objectivity if that is indeed even ostensibly realistic as an aim or an objective. So when often in reality, it just means that these people are vehemently opposed to correcting for their existing biases because they superstitiously believe that they don't even have any, right? Leia sharing, I've been accused of being hyperbolic when I express emotion precisely, right? So again, kind of like I was alluding to earlier, that kind of performance of no affect within this really superficial take fronts as more objective. Yeah, this neuroscience is absolutely hamstrung by colonizer ideology. So this is one of those sort of, right, frontiers using, again, the colonial language intentionally for folks that are racing to find some space where, again, they don't have to acknowledge their subjectivity, where they don't have to acknowledge their positionality, where they can continue to front as objective in these ways that we need to name are as unobjective as you could possibly be. And again, this is also why I'm doing all of this name dropping, bringing in all of this literature that has demonstrated this for literally decades. And the thing is, a lot of folks don't know how to respond to this, especially for our folks that don't yet have a critique of positivism or scientism. Just wait, I'm saving some of the best for last for some weed folding later this season. We are about to go there in a huge way around right, so-called objectivity, right? Empowered female voices sharing and facts without human emotional correctives can be used so abusively. Yeah, that recourse is so so often abusive. And that's why it's incredibly important for us to develop some languaging to be able to name that ridiculousness for what it is, right? That these hucksters are pretending to somehow be in this space of more intelligence or truth value or having more explanatory power than any of the rest of us. But what they're doing is actually anti-intellectual. Eva sharing, I feel like this ties into the rhetoric of niceness and the ways niceness is used to justify abuse and oppression. Absolutely, right? So when people are masquerading as neutral and people buy into that illusion, then if you actually just openly put some cards out on the table, like, oh no, like I have a political stance, 
I'm not pretending to be objective. Like I care about the earth, care about all of y'all, care about myself, care about our descendants. Then all of a sudden for some folks, it's like, oh, what an affront to our capacity to just be civil and to be objective together. It's a complete farce. But again, there's not yet the cultural vocabulary mainstreamed for us to be able to call this out, right? Uh, but, right, this classic reason-emotion dichotomy is one of the biggest cultural impacts on how we understand feelings and don't today. And that regularly serves to discourage folks from being curious around what feelings can teach us. Because we're supposed to want to side with reason in this split because it gets framed as superior. Madeline sharing, this is how women get labeled as borderline and hysterical. You can say that again, precisely. But what other stuff impacts how we experience our feelings? Advertising. So furthermore, advertising is a billion dollar industry that's designed to manipulate our feelings to get us to buy stuff. So if we wanna understand the current affective landscape of neo-colonial societies like the US, we've gotta address this. Horrifically though, millions of our loved ones seem unaware about this when they talk about feelings. For example, I've seen multiple entrepreneurial spaces where folks talk about desire as if it's pure truth, like follow your desires. What you want is your ultimate compass. Like these millionaire charlatans never even took a sociology 101 class in their teens or listened to any punk music to understand that someone desiring BMWs and expensive clothes and liquor isn't pure. Those desires are implanted in us overwhelmingly by commercials. So when emotions are deliberately linked to products, businesses can get people to behave in a way that can go against our interests. Irrelevant objects can become powerful symbols for how we want others to see us. And this is especially relevant for our loved ones that might perform aspects of their identities for external validation. For example, maybe if we want to feel accepted by a peer group, maybe if we're feeling alienated or isolated or ostracized, then that vulnerability paired with marketing might mean that we engage in so-called retail therapy to modulate our feelings. Can we see how the language of addiction is relevant in some instances here also, not bringing that in casually in the least? So thirdly, how about that happiness imperative we were talking about earlier? That's a major pressure in the realm of affect, right? So give thanks that decades for sure of that feminist and economic and anti-capitalist critique of the saccharine happiness industry exists for us to learn from. So then we can be more boundaried in the face of that kind of gaslighting that would say that we need some sort of superficial shiny objects to be able to experience equanimity. It's devastating to see so many millions of our loved ones buying into this manipulation. 
Are you starting to see how our understanding of feelings requires context, right? That seed that we were planting earlier in the season. These are also interconnected, right? So again, Dr. Rob Solomon, right, the former, the late philosophy professor from the University of Texas, published about this significantly, right, that role of context. So when we are wanting to learn about our feelings with more specificity, we've got to honor the time, the space, the place, and the other context clues through which we're feeling the thing. So for example, here's one instance that he has written about extensively. If you're feeling a breath on the back of your neck, right? If we're say walking home alone down a dimly lit alley, that might elicit one response. But if you and your romantic partner are cuddling, it could elicit another range of interpretations. Even if the physiological sensations possibly of excitement and or arousal might be sometimes the same, if not similar, right? So context is also relevant here, say, when it comes to shame. Have you ever heard some folks that seem to be universally anti-shame? So sometimes, right, public shaming, right, can get, right, exacerbated in a way that can be abusive, right, that then folks can have super strong reactions to that make them invalidate, right, expressions of shame that might actually make sense within many of our cultures, right, public shaming to actually support people acting consensually, right? Letting folks know that there might be consequences if they're being non-consensual. So what's another major contender that impacts, right, feelings in the settler colonial US today? Fear-mongering. We're surrounded by fear-mongering. Algorithms that exacerbate rage on the order of billions of people. So to have a rigorous conversation about so-called emotional intelligence today, we'd be well advised to get into some of those kinds of forces. So especially, right, since 2001 in the settler colonial U.S., right, there has been this ceaseless, right, what gets called the war on terror, right, what is more aptly named the war of terror, right, in typical gaslighting fashion, the Obama administration was like, there's not a war on terror anymore. We rebranded it, the Overseas Contingency Operation, still the war of terror, right? So the terror that the U.S. military industrial complex has spread in the bodies of millions of people all over the world. And why? principally so that arms manufacturers, defense contractors like Halliburton and Boeing can make bank unnecessarily, and the surveillance state can continue making a killing, literally, right? So there's twofold terror, right, that is bred in mass in this kind of way, right? So victims, right, people that are murdered and whose family members and community members are murdered abroad are legitimately terrorized by you. U.S. terrorism, and then domestically within the settler colonial U.S., people are fed this 
steady diet of fear-mongering propaganda to keep weapon sellers busy, right? So it's almost like for some folks, right, just this constant feedback loop of languishing from the Cold War, from the McCarthy era in terms of this anti-communist jargon, right? But sometimes, right, with some new variants like sprinkling in Islamophobia in particular since 2001, Right. So this is also super relevant when it comes to the kinds of demagoguery that right that we're swirling in for sure in the settler colonial U.S. today, but also in other parts of the world, too. So it's important for us to get into that also. Right. So that we're not just getting swept up in some of the superficial ways that people talk about feelings. Right. Just trusting them on a pedestal. Right. As if they're not mediated by all of these political and cultural and social realms that we've just been talking about. So one of the major takeaways that I hope y'all glean from my words is the following. People need to reflect on their feelings instead of just uncritically putting them on a pedestal. And if we want to have any chance at solid explanatory power in our interpretations of our feelings, our reflections have to be at least historicized and politicized. So for example, right, white people feeling really uncomfortable and intimidated might be a stable component of them habituating the practice of ethics until we're all free. Cis men too. U.S. citizens, too. I could continue. So if someone in a vacuum just isn't into that, it's pretty predictable that they might likely be skewing towards supporting an unjust status quo, right? So how about that maxim y'all might be familiar with, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. So similarly on that front, we've got to acknowledge that there are affective baselines that can fluctuate depending upon how they've worked in a particular time and place. So as we're beginning to wrap up, do y'all have any questions about anything that's come up so far? Please feel free to share in the chat if you do. I know that we have gotten into a whole lot, so I want to pause for a moment to make space in case you do have any questions or feedback. And I could also just share that uh, we also see, and this is so relevant if we're going to right, put feelings in conversation with our political reality in the least, right? Have you noticed that tons of middle-class folks cis men and white folks and other overprivileged folks can seem to have sort of minimal affective range. So it's almost like if someone has never worked a set of muscles before, so they might not have a right, robust embodied sense of what they're capable of because they've been so astoundingly coddled culturally, socially, and otherwise for generations. Yes, to answer your question, I'll definitely post this. Uh, thank you for the compliment. Um, and sharing some resources critiquing the aversion to shame. 
Oof, that is such a good question. Um, I will post if anything comes to mind. None are immediately. But, you know, around that, I could actually share a little bit more real quick. Um, so I'd share that. So the role of group shaming within many of our cultures can get a bad rap if folks have personal relationships with that feeling that are a little more akin to a shame spiral. So, for example, if they have a baseline feeling of unworthiness or potentially feeling in secure or what some people call low self-esteem, etc. So that paired with shame, right, can elicit a biased understanding of the role that shame can play because it's been colored by these other variables. And also, for sure, many of us have witnessed people being vicious and abusive in the name of alleged accountability, like in the criminal injustice system, or when people choose to be manipulative and fake, right, in so-called accountability spaces as an excuse to spew venom at other people. So if folks are associating shame with that, then they can inadvertently, to use this horrible yet popular mainstream right phrase, throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. Um, so that's a little bit that I would share about shame at the moment. Uh, and more broadly, Again, one of the things that I would want to share, taking it back to right, the way that our very understanding of feelings is so intrinsically wrapped up in oppression and injustice would be, right? So I shared a little bit about that coddling of overprivileged folks affectively. You might have heard about this in the context of discussions over white women's tears, for example. So a flip side of that research, right, is that which demonstrates that, say, women of color, queer and trans folks, non-binary folks, gender non-conforming folks, right, are systemically less likely to be believed, say, by doctors when we say that we're in pain, right, or the range of physical pain that we're experiencing gets minimized. So this would be an example, right, of some people's affective states, right, getting minimized, right, or invalidated while other people's are elevated, right? So what did Dr. Edward Said teach us about contrapuntality? If we want to understand any of those variables, we've got to perceive them relationally, right? And Rachel Sharon, can you talk about the complexity of trauma? Like being in activation skews our sense of reality. So how to honor the reality of feelings and rage, but also be real that our perceptions are altered. You know that's something that we're going to get into later in the season when we talk specifically about trauma responses. So thank you for that wonderful segue. Folks will have to stay tuned for a couple of weeks from now. Although this is actually all we've got time for today. I'm super stoked that y'all were able to come through to have a listen and participate. Please feel free to share if you imagine that you know anyone that might benefit from getting into some of these musings. Also, if you want to share out, feel free to cite your sources. Please don't plagiarize. And if you're able to kick down any kind of financial support via PayPal or Patreon, that would be sincerely appreciated. Thank you all so much. And you know, I hope to see you next week to continue on with our weeding and seeding. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadia, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. 
I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil. Deceitful and coward, people in power. All power to the people is the hour of the peaceful. Freedom is ours, yeah. Freedom is ours.